All right, this morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 in the New Testament Scriptures, Mark chapter 1. And if you'd like to take notes by handout, there is a handout in the bulletin uh, for you. Mark chapter 1. I also plan to have a little bit of PowerPoint throughout the sermon. Let's make sure uh, this okay. All right. Uh, so we tested this about 110 times uh, uh, this morning. If you were here last week, you know that uh, the people in the sound room were speeding me along uh, in the sermon, flashed through 40 slides in less than a second. Uh, but we look forward to working through the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, Mark gives uh, a heading for the introduction of the book where he describes that he's going to be talking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. From Mark's perspective, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, contains three components. And uh, as you're looking down from Mark chapter 1, verse 2 through verse 13, he describes three, these three components of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preliminaries before Jesus' public ministry. These three components are the ministry of a forerunner by the name of John the Baptist, then the baptism of Jesus, and his temptation. Those three components are the core content of Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. Uh, last Sunday evening, uh, we looked carefully at the preaching ministry of John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And I suggested, if, if you weren't here, even if you were, just as a means of quickly reviewing, I suggested that John's proclamation revolved around two things, or he, he preached two things in preparation for the Lord. First of all, in verse 4, you can, you can see in the middle of the verse, uh, John Mark talks about John the Baptist proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, John proclaimed that rebellious Israel needed to repent and be baptized in the Jordan River in order to prepare for God's coming salvation. John's baptism, we learned last Sunday night, was, is, is different than Christian baptism. Christian baptism should come after someone has saving faith in Jesus Christ. You're then immersed in water as a sign to the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. John's baptism was specifically for the Israelite people, calling them to repent and be baptized in the Jordan so that God's coming salvation would approach. Okay? And so that's what John proclaimed. Verse 4, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then in verse 7, we also learned that he proclaimed or he preached that one mightier than himself would soon arrive and bring the blessing of the Spirit of God with him. That is, John the Baptist describes the stronger one who will deliver people by the power of God. I remember growing up as a small child and thinking my father was the strongest man on the planet. Now, I think he may have actually told me that a few times. I'm not, I'm not certain. But 
I remember watching him, and if you, I think I told you once about him uh, carrying a, a, an upright refrigerator and freezer on his back all by himself. I remember once he had wrapped up a, an upright dresser. He had wrapped it with uh, some sort of thing so the drawers wouldn't open up, and he, I remember seeing him grab that dresser. My dad's a big guy, so he can reach his arms almost the whole way around it. Grabbed that dresser and carried himself up and put it in, a, in our pickup truck. Well, I remember on a few occasions, my father would be describing to me uh, someone at work that was stronger than he was. And as a small young boy, I thought, that's not even like possible, is it? Stronger than he was. John the Baptist, as he proclaimed this message in the wilderness, says, there is one coming after me who's stronger than I am. He's so much stronger, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loosen his sandals. This is John's the Baptist message. Well, this morning, we will examine the final two parts of the beginning of the gospel. These two parts, I believe, will reveal more about the stronger one, Jesus Christ. So look down in your Bibles at verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So these two components, two final parts of the beginning of the gospel. First, we'll see the baptism of Jesus in verses 9 through 11. And in verse 9, uh, we see the baptism itself. In verse 9, we see that Jesus came from a small town called Nazareth, and This town is situated uh, in its province in Galilee, I believe, for Roman readers who'd have no idea where Nazareth is. Nazareth is a little town at this time probably of about 500 people. And so John Mark tells us it's located in the province of Galilee. And we see that John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River where John had been performing all of his other baptisms. I think the events unfolded in verse 9 are pretty straightforward. You read that verse, I think we can all pretty much understand it. It's pretty clear. Um, But let's not lose sight of the unusual nature of this. Okay, because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we should ask ourselves, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized like that? And he is the son of God. He never did, nor will ever, sin So one of the questions I ask in your handout is, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, Jesus was baptized in this way to fulfill prophetic scriptures. We actually don't have an account of that in Mark's gospel, but if you go to Matthew's account of this, Jesus says, I must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So he does this to fulfill the scriptures, and I believe he also does this so that he might identify with the people of Israel. That is, Jesus' immersion in the Jordan River is a way for him to join in with his people. You see, they left their homes in Galilee and all of, you know, ancient Palestine, 
and were baptized in the wilderness, so too will their Savior be. Jesus then leaves Nazareth, comes out into the wilderness, and is baptized. That's verse 9. That leads us to verses 10 and 11, uh, what I call the results of his baptism in those verses. So look at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit uh, descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with, with, with you I am well pleased. In verses 10 and 11, I think any one of you could outline this verse. If you had time to stop and think about this, verses 10 and 11 are the results of Jesus' baptism. And there are three results. <clears throat> three things immediately happen after Jesus is baptized in verses 10 and 11. So I want to just work our way through each one of them. First, the text says that the heavens were torn open. Look in your Bible in verse 10, you see the words being torn open really come from one word in the original, and it represents very strong language. One commentator by the name of R.T. France says it this way. He says, Mark's use of these words are vivid and unexpected. I want to consider why the phrase are being torn open or the one word in the original is vivid and unexpected. So look at that word just a little bit more. First, this word is a passive word, the passive participle, which means, I believe, that the implied actor is God. God the Father will be the one, I, I personally believe, who will do this act. Second, Mark chooses a strong word here for being torn open, and you can especially see that as you compare it to the other gospel writers. The other gospel writers, as they're describing the baptism of Jesus, they use a word that's normally translated in English, uh, and the heavens were opened. John chooses a different word to describe this event. He says, the heavens were torn apart or ripped open. It's a very, again, very strong word. And it's a rare word not found very much in the New Testament at all. For instance, this word for being torn open is only found one other place in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to actually ask you to turn over there for a moment. Go to Mark chapter 15 so I can show you the other place that this is. Now, if you don't have a Bible, I'll put it up on the screen for us here as well. Mark chapter 15, and I want to look at verses 38 and 39. For the same word, only two times in Mark's Gospel at the beginning at the end, kind of bookends for the Gospel. Mark 15, 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn, torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he, Jesus, breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. I want you to notice a few things here. This is a description of God intervening again and tearing the veil of the temple from top to body. Remember reading about this? When Jesus is on the cross and he dies, God rips the veil of the temple like it's a piece of paper or something from top to bottom. But once you also notice in this text, the fact that of, you know, Mark uses God's tearing the veil as, as a way to get the attention of someone. You see this in verse 39? To get the attention of a Roman, 
a Roman soldier who observes Jesus in his last breath and sees the veil of the temple being torn and responds by saying, truly, this must be the Son of God. See the last line on the slide there? This must be the Son of God. So one of the very interesting observations I will make is that expression, this is truly the Son of God, is what the heavenly voice is just about ready to say about Jesus in Mark chapter 1 as well. You can go back to Mark chapter 1 in your Bible. This heavenly voice, this voice out of heaven says, you are my beloved son. So in the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark 1, and the end of Mark's gospel, Mark 15, he has things tearing or ripping apart. And he has Christ being identified as God's son. I think the significance of this moment in Christ's life cannot be ignored. The heavens ripped apart when he was baptized. But then as you keep reading in chapter 1, verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So the second result of the baptism of Jesus is that the Spirit of God descends. So if you're taking notes, you can fill in the blanks. The Spirit descends. This is probably, I think, Mark's way of describing the ongoing empowerment that will be placed upon Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. In other words, I think the other Gospels help you in their accounts as well. What we see here is that the Spirit of God descends like a dove. He's not a dove, but he kind of hovers down on top of Jesus, and the other Gospels tell us, and he remains there. He remains on Jesus. I think that this is describing the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit's enabling and anointing of Jesus that will carry with him throughout the rest of his earthly ministry. And uh, this fulfills Old Testament scriptures as well. We won't take the time to turn back there, but I have a few of these, and you could write down the references. Actually, if you have a handout, the references are on there. Isaiah 11 and verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Isaiah, in prophesying about a future Messiah, says the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. I would add to that Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. We're actually going to return to this verse later on and look at it a little bit more closely. But in Isaiah 42, in verse 1, Isaiah says, Behold my servant, this is from the perspective of God, Behold my servant, whom whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I think this is describing the future Messiah that would come and God would place his spirit upon him. So the spirit descending down upon Jesus and resting upon him is fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. I think the spirits and anointing or empowering of Christ can be seen all throughout the gospels, especially the gospel of Mark. You can see that Jesus is performing the acts that he performs under the power or through the power of the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit. As a matter of fact, if you look in the very next verse, look at Mark chapter 1, verse 12. You know, so the Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. And look at verse 12 and how it's worded. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So once Jesus has the Spirit of God, 
empowering him, the spirit drives him out. Now, we're going to talk about that later, but, but, but cast him out into the wilderness. And so we see here that Jesus is baptized and a few things happen. The heavens are torn apart. The spirit of God descends upon him. And then third, a heavenly voice speaks. If you're filling in blanks early in the morning, wake up, fill in the blank. A heavenly voice speaks. Now, while we're not told whose voice this is, it becomes obvious as you read through this text and as you look at the other accounts in the Gospels. This is the voice of God the Father. For he's going to call Jesus his son. Matter of fact, I want to look at what he says, and I want to kind of look at it a little more closely. He says, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. While this looks like a simple, solitary sentence, perhaps two little parts to it, the significance of this statement and profession by the heavenly voice upon Jesus is something that we should consider. Now, the way I want to emphasize this with you is I I want to suggest that when God utters these words about Jesus, that he actually has a few different Old Testament passages in his mind that are now realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus and the disciples had a very deep knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, as the Old Testament scriptures, because it was their Bible. It's what they had. Their knowledge of the Old Testament, I think, is, was often, especially Jesus, right, was, was far greater than the knowledge of many believers today. So I think we, we see this phrase and we think this is, a, this, is a, this is a great testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ, but we lose some of God's intention with it if we don't understand some of these things. So when, when God says this or when Mark records this, they wrote and they intended the reader to capture some Old Testament text and teach it. In fact, one scholar said it this way, Ben Witherington, he said, Even when Mark is not directly quoting Scripture, it is Scripture that informs how he presents things, even things as mundane as the apparel of John the Baptist. Listen to what he said. He said, recognizing the scriptural allusions and context is one of the keys to understanding the gospel of Mark. So as we go through this, I want to suggest that God specifically had three Old Testament texts in his mind when he makes this statement. Those texts are Psalm 2 and verse 7, Isaiah 42, 1, and Genesis 22, and I want to look at them with you. So here's the statement. I'm going to use it, the New King James just so you can see. You can see that Pastor Brent's just not like making this up this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 12, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When God makes that statement, the phrase, you are my son, I believe is repeated from Psalm 2 and verse 7. So why don't you turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 2. We're not going to look at all these Old Testament texts, but we will look at this one. So turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm number 2 and verse 7. Psalm 2 and verse 7. 
This statement that we're going to read in just a moment is a statement concerning the sonship of Jesus. Perhaps you know this psalm, you've read this psalm, you understand this psalm. This is a royal psalm that is attributed to David that speaks about the ultimate son of David, the greater king who will one day rule as king over the nations. This psalm that we're going to read in just a moment or parts of it tells of the coronation of the Davidic king on Mount Zion. Look down in verse six. I'm just gonna read two verses. The psalm that says, as for me, this is again from the perspective of God, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the degree of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And so this psalm in the Old Testament is this royal psalm where God is saying, he's describing a future Davidic king that's going to reign and rule, and God will say to this king, you are my son. This day I've begotten you. Now in the New Testament, the heavenly voice applies these words to Jesus when he says, you are my son. Matter of fact, one New Testament scholar, he's actually a preacher, he said this. He says, the phrase, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. And in quoting from this Davidic psalm, the father announces, you are the Messiah king, the greater son of David, who will rule over the nations. Again, so we're just going to take a quick pass through some of these Old Testament texts. I think the point that is emphasized in Psalm 2 is that Jesus, the future Messiah, will be the, the royal son, the royal son. Now, adding to that, I think that there's another passage, and we, don't, we won't take the time to turn there. I'll just describe it to you. There's another passage that God has, has in his mind that he's describing here about Jesus, and that is Isaiah 42 and verse 1. See, the second half of this phrase is, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, uh, the text says, uh, behold, my servant, in whom my soul delights. Synonymous expression here. The very next phrase is, I have put my spirit upon him. Isaiah chapter 42, uh, you have the beginning of something in the book of Isaiah uh, that's called the servant songs. The servant songs. These songs run from Isaiah 42 and pretty much go the whole way to Isaiah 53. Perhaps you remember much of Isaiah 53 that ends by God telling us through Isaiah that he's going to crush the suffering servant with words like, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that bought us peace. Remember this text in Isaiah 53 that says, oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's by his stripes that we're going to be healed. That brings to a close this discussion of the suffering servant of Yahweh that's going to come and he's going to to reign and rule. Now this text in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 that's that's on the slide here behind me um, declares that God is pleased with his servant. And then the very next verse says that he anoints him with the spirit of God. 
So I think God has this text in his mind. He says, in whom I'm well pleased, in whom my soul delights. He's got this Isaiah 42 passage in mind and this, this emphasis on the anointed servant of Yahweh. But I think that there perhaps is one other text in mind. There's one word that we have not seen in any of these other places. He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This, I think, is to remind us of Genesis chapter 2, 22 and verse 2. Again, this is a familiar passage in the Old Testament, one that you might know well, but the text to Abraham concerning his son Isaac, God says, take your son, your beloved one, whom you've loved, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. In this chapter in Genesis, Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise, which came from the dead womb of Sarah. And at the last moment, if you remember this text, remember this text, remember this children's story you told? And at the very last moment, God provides a ram caught in the thicket as a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac. However, what we learn in the New Testament is that this chapter foreshadows the sacrificial nature of the beloved Son of God. No substitute will be provided for Jesus, however. He will be sacrificed for the sins of humanity. And so, this is a case I would make that when God utters this from heaven, he's got these texts in mind. These three Old Testament texts become parts of three strands of expectations among the Jews regarding the Messiah. Okay, so the passages we looked at just kind of picture a little bit of this. The Messiah would be the royal son of God, like Psalm 2. The The Messiah, when he comes, will be the anointed servant of Yahweh, like Isaiah 42. And the Messiah, when he comes, will be a sacrificial victim for the sins of God's people. Genesis chapter 22. It's actually that last strand, the sacrificial victim, that I think much of Judaism just didn't really fully grasp and understand. But think of the significance of God's statement. What God shows is that these three expectations regarding the Messiah are all now realized in one person. Jesus Christ, Son of God. So as we go through these texts, I think this statement from God verifies what Mark said about Jesus' identity. Mark 1, verse 1, says, The beginnings of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, Son of God. And here you have a very powerful statement from God himself that Jesus is my beloved son. That's the baptism of Jesus. That leads us into verses 12 and 13. And the the, the third preliminary, third part to the beginnings of the gospel that Mark gives in his introduction, and that is the temptation of Jesus. Just two verses, so it should take me about two minutes to work through, right? You know better than that. Uh, temptation of Jesus. Look at verse 12. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals in the wilderness, and the angels were ministering to him. 
So just after the divine testimony that Jesus is the son of God, we see that the spirit immediately drives Jesus further into the wilderness where he will be all alone. No people will be there. Now, the word drove or driven out is actually, again, a very strong word. It comes from the word ekbalo, which means to cast out, to throw out. Very strong word to describe the fact that the Spirit of God cast Jesus further into the wilderness to become the object of a sinister, satanic plot to attack him. And so what we learn in this text is that Satan himself, perhaps being being attracted by the cosmic ripping open of the heavens and the descent of the Spirit of God and the sound of this heavenly voice, Satan himself comes and begins to tempt Christ. One commentator by the name of Ben Witherington said it this way. He says, uh, Jesus' arrival and empowerment immediately provoke a challenge from the prince of the powers himself. Now, while there are other accounts of the, bap- or of the temptation of Jesus, and they reveal more about the nature of the temptation, Mark is more interested in describing the grueling conditions that Jesus faced in the wilderness. So the first way he does this is he says Satan himself is the one who's going to tempt Jesus. And he describes the temptation as lasting a very long time. Satan comes for 40 days and tempts him. You look at the other Gospels, I think it becomes even more clear that, you know, it's not like Satan's just waiting to tempt him to the end of the 40 days. This is 40 days of tempting in the wilderness from Satan. And this satanic threat is made even worse by the presence of wild animals. You see that in the passage? It comes from one word that could be translated beasts in the wilderness. I took a little moment this week and I stopped to think about this. You know, I don't know that this description really strikes us the way it would a first century reader. Okay. They would actually be threatened by beasts and wild animals. They would understand the threat. You know, in Chesapeake and Virginia Beach, I can't remember the last time I was afraid of wild beasts being attacked or killed from a wild beast. Now, I was just in South Carolina not too long ago, and I saw a little crocodile, and it frightened me to death. But of course, this is describing, I think, something else. This word, wild animals or beasts, is not used again in the Gospels. And it's only very rarely used in the New Testament. I want to take you to one of those uses. Go over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. And I want to read a few verses to you in that narrative. If you remember, this is Paul. He had just been shipwrecked, and he makes it. He somehow survives the shipwreck, and he gets onto an island in Malta. And he describes something that happens to him. Look at it. Luke describes it. Acts 28, verse 4. Acts 28, verse 4. It says, when the native people saw the creature, that's the same word, they saw the wild beast. Hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, Paul, shook off the wild beast into the fire and suffered no harm. 
they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and so not, no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. I think it's fairly clear from this text that what Luke has in mind or what actually attacked Paul was a venomous snake at Malta. But Luke does not, just not call him a venomous snake. He calls him a wild beast. A wild beast is hanging from his hand. And the natives say, man, this guy is in for it. He survived the shipwreck, but he's going to die. I've got to thank one of the pastoral assistants who heard me read this sermon last night. He did some research for me over the night, and he said that he was able to, to, to learn that there are at least nine different types of venomous snakes in the Palestine area in our modern world today. When Jesus says that he was tempted by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness and he was surrounded by wild beasts, I think these sort of things are in his mind. This word is also used in Revelation 6. You don't have to turn there, but it's used of a rider on a pale horse who's called death. This end time rider and this pale horse called death comes and he is empowered to kill one quarter of the world's population. He does does so through sword, famine, pestilence, and by wild animals, by wild beasts. So as we come to this passage, the temptation of Jesus, this is a sinister, (laughs) satanic plot. He's driven by the Spirit of God deep into the wilderness. He's all by himself. Satan himself is tempting him. He's surrounded by wild creatures. This is a significant moment. Matter of fact, the significance is described by one author. His name is Robert Stein in his commentary. He says this. The temptation shows that the spirit-led Jesus is the son of God. This is seen in his facing a great temptation by Satan himself, which, which lasted 40 days. But Jesus is stronger than Satan. He goes out into the wilderness, a place of wild beasts and the realm of Satan. And he returns victorious, for he is stronger than the evil one. Well, this sinister, satanic plot is met by or with supernatural assistance. You look one more time down in your Bible, you can see this. When at the end of the text, it says the angels came and ministered to him. The way I personally take that is I think the the other gospels... Uh, would reveal that these angels came after Jesus successfully resists all the temptations of Satan and they minister to his physical needs. So as we wrap this up, Mark writes this gospel to encourage people regarding the stronger one who was victorious, appointed by God, empowered by the Spirit of God. He was victorious over Satan in the midst of wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. I want to close this way with a few applications. First of all, I want to encourage you by saying, the stronger one who overcame all of this can help you too. Perhaps you're here today and you've never believed 
in the stronger one that Mark describes. The one who is victorious over Satan. I want to stop and I want to ask you, do you really believe what the gospel says here about Jesus? I think it makes a huge difference what you think about Jesus. And the gospels say this, Jesus is God's son. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And then he was sacrificed on a cross for the sins of the world. Only to rise again three days later so that anyone who would believe on him would have eternal life. I'm like reading down through this text about the baptism of Jesus and the spirit of God coming on top of him. And then he's driven out into the wilderness and Satan comes and tempts him. I mean, do you believe these things about Jesus? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? If you're gonna be accepted by God, the heavenly father, God, the father, you must believe in the stronger one. If you're gonna be approved by God, you must believe in him. But the scriptures are very clear. Every person is a sinner and our sin separates us from God. And the only rescue is the stronger one, Jesus Christ, who has come to deliver people from their sins. Matter of fact, Luke says it very well. Peter preaches it in Acts 4.12. He says, neither is there salvation found in any other name. For there is no other name under heaven that will deliver you. No other name, no other person. That means you cannot deliver yourself. I can't deliver you. The only person who can deliver you from your sins is the stronger one who is victorious over Satan, death, and hell, and now lives in heaven with God. And so if you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus, you don't believe these things about the gospel, I would suggest it makes all the difference. You must believe. Or perhaps you're here today and you're a believer who's enduring your own set of difficulties, trials, persecutions, temptations, and experiences. I want to encourage you. You feel like you're overwhelmed in some life trial or some sort of temptation that has you. You keep surrendering in some area of temptation. You still, we still serve Mark's stronger one who overcame Satan and the powers of hell and death. You can be encouraged today even in the midst of your own affliction, trial, persecution, and temptation. I mean, you may be overtaken in the same, same temptation over and over and over again, but you serve a Savior who overcame your sins. And you serve the stronger one who, re- who resisted Satan for 40 days. One who can show you the way as well to resist temptation by the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text about the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. <laughs> I'm thankful for what these passages reveal about the identity of Jesus Christ. 
He was your beloved son. In him, you were well pleased. This is not just true of his entry or preliminaries for the gospel. It's true throughout his whole life. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring salvation. Lord, if there's someone here today that has never believed the name of Jesus, who struggles with what the gospels say about him, may they understand the significance of this pronouncement from the heavenly voice, from God, who who looked down and said that this is your son. You're pleased with him. Lord, in a room this size, perhaps there are many believers as well who are struggling in their own areas of temptation. Satan has tempted them, and they've surrendered. Lord, as believers in Jesus Christ, of course, none of us are perfect, and we surrender to sin. We, we often fall into the same things over and over and over again, May we leave here this morning, though, rejoicing that we serve the stronger one who was able to hold out and never surrender to the temptations of Satan so that we now stand in his righteousness, not our own. And Lord, may we leave here this morning in prayer to the stronger one who knows how to endure temptation and ask him for strength in our temptations and trials as well. Lord, we long to live like Jesus Christ. We're bound by our own sinful nature, but we long to live like Jesus Christ. So please, through the Spirit, enable us and teach us how to not surrender to those fleshly temptations from Satan that would destroy us. Lord, may we rejoice in the stronger one and may we strive to look more like him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.